Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. This morning's scripture comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a stairway set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and all the families of earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel. The name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning once again. I'm Pastor Corey, one of the ministers here at Orange, and today we are starting our summer sermon series, comma, Stones of Remembrance. I tease everybody, try to say that 10 times fast, okay? Our summer sermon series, Stones of Remembrance. And we are going to be, for the next several weeks, looking at both the Old and New Testaments, where rocks and stones appear in scripture. Now, I know this may seem odd or uh, maybe a stretch, but they are everywhere in scripture. We hear Jesus proclaim, on this rock, I will build my church, when he refers to Peter. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Moses strikes a rock and water comes forth for the Israelites. And in the gospels, we're told, even the rocks will cry out if we fall silent. Stones, rocks, They're important. There's a Jewish ritual of leaving rocks, leaving stones on graves instead of flowers. Maybe you've seen it. You often see it in veteran memorials. You know that those are Jewish graves if they have stones on them. And I looked into 
why this tradition began, what are the origins of it. And some say it was a warning. If you remember, Pastor Adam preached uh, during the season of Lent on the practice of marking graves as to avoid coming within a certain distance of a corpse because it would make you spiritually unclean, even if it was underground. So laying stones would mark that spot so you could avoid it. Others say it's because stones last longer than flowers. It's true. (laughs) And still others say the tradition began because the stones were placed to hold down the soul with the body. Because as the body is laid to rest, the soul goes upward. And loved ones wanted to keep the soul here. It's a comfort Thinking about this example and all the possible reasons why this ritual exists, what remains undeniable is that stones hold a heavy significance within the Jewish tradition and within Christian scripture as well. And so this morning, we're considering the story of Jacob in Genesis 28. Now, Jacob is a complicated character. He is a twin. He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah and the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish faith. And his questionable behavior begins even before he's born, which is pretty impressive, okay? Even before he's born, his mother, Rebekah, receives a prophecy that she will have twins, but that the elder will serve the younger. Right? Now, this is not the way the family structure operated in ancient Jewish culture. The firstborn was, by default, the inheritor of the family, power, land, the title. Following his father's death, he would become the patriarch, and everyone would look to him for leadership. But Rebekah is given this foreshadowing that this will not be the case for her sons. Esau is born first, and Jacob second, and Jacob will rule over Esau. And we know that this does come to fruition because Jacob becomes the father to the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? In the story of Jacob, it is the story of Jacob and not Esau's that we track for so much of the Old Testament. He fathers the sons that become the tribes, and we follow his lineage all the way to Jesus. It's always the answer. Good job. We follow all the way to Jesus himself. So Jacob's power. However, his legacy, it doesn't come through honest means. He blackmails his brother Esau out of his birthright with a bowl of stew. He withholds the food from his famished sibling until Esau agrees to sell him his birthright. And I have never been that hangry before, but maybe some of you can relate. And Esau agrees to it. And then... He and his mother schemed to deceive Isaac, Jacob's father, into giving Jacob and not Esau the firstborn's blessing. Isaac is on his deathbed. His vision is failing him. And Jacob puts on garments to make himself seem more like his older brother. And his father believes it's him. And so he blesses him instead of Esau. And it's shortly after this blessing debacle that we find ourselves in the story of Genesis 28. Because, you see, Jacob does not head to Haran for vacation. He is essentially a fugitive. His mother told him to go while Esau calms down in the wake of Jacob stealing both his birthright and his blessing from their father. I mean, Rebecca thinks Esau is so angry that he is capable of murdering Jacob. So he needs to leave. 
He goes to Haran, which is interesting because that is the place his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, they left to follow Yahweh. So it isn't by accident that we see Jacob in the midst of his sinfulness going backwards, metaphorically. He's running from the mess he's made of his life. And even though we will experience and witness God's extraordinary grace and mercy and redemption in this story, we also take a moment to reckon with the real consequences of Jacob's choices. And one that stands out to me is that his choice made in partnership with his mother who favored him, his choice to betray Esau and his father, forces him to flee. And in that attempt to escape his brother's wrath, he never, ever sees his mother, Rebecca, again. She dies while he is away building a life elsewhere. And it's so very sad to me to think how they must have both wondered and reflected with a sense of regret for what they'd done to both Esau and Isaac. And Jacob, for his life, doesn't avoid his own betrayal, his share of betrayal. He is usurped. He's tricked. He's manipulated by his father-in-law Laban, who promises that if Jacob works for him for seven years, he can marry his daughter Rachel, whom Jacob loves. But on their wedding night, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter Leah. And when Jacob realizes the trickery Laban offers to allow him to marry Rachel, if he works for him for another seven years. Now, I know that this world may feel distant and foreign to us, but the manipulation and betrayal cast upon Jacob, all of us can feel for him. And we can also be quite appalled by his own deceit and betrayal. And I share all of this in this story because sometimes I think we have an image that folks in the Bible are all deeply righteous, perfectly law-abiding citizens who have access to God that we somehow don't and who we can't relate to. And maybe we think that because a lot of the communal scripture we study is about Jesus. And Jesus is the exception. He is deeply righteous. He is without sin. Jesus is so exceptional that he is the one who redeems and restores us from our sinfulness. The way that we harm people, the things we do to separate us from God. But otherwise... Beyond Jesus, we've got a lot of characters who are enormously flawed, sometimes despicably flawed, just like us. And Jacob is at the top of this list. What he did to his brother, what he did to his father. And yet, and yet while he's on the run as a fugitive, trying to escape the mess he's made, he falls asleep utterly exhausted. Exhausted from his journey, from his brokenness. And God meets him. God shows up. God meets him. God doesn't abandon him. God doesn't chastise him. God doesn't reject him. God meets him even in his mess. And God reminds him of who he is and who he's always been. A descendant of Abraham. The one God chose to entrust with sharing God's goodness with the entire world. God tells Jacob, because of who I, God, am. Not because of you or what you've done, but because I am a God of covenantal promise. Covenantal faithfulness. I'm making you a promise. I'm going to give you a purpose, and I'm going to be your God. 
Jacob, I need you to be my person, my follower, my disciple. And I've been thinking so much about this story and asking the Spirit to reveal to us what we might need to hear today. And as I've been studying and praying, there's just this resounding echo. This message that keeps coming back to me that we have forgotten who God is. And because of that, we have forgotten who we are. We as individuals, we as a church, we as a larger community, we as the overall body of Christ, we have forgotten who we are. We are all running from mistakes we've made or people we've hurt or decisions we regret. We're living lives of avoidance or accommodation or self-righteousness. We're trying to avoid the pain we've caused or the pain we've experienced. And in the meantime, while we're all so consumed with our own sinfulness and brokenness, we can't remember our purpose. We can't remember that there is one who sees us not for what we've done, but for who we were created to be. God goes to extraordinary lengths in this story to remind Jacob of his belovedness, even as the world tries to distract him. God meets him in his dream, and Jacob, he's overwhelmed. Jacob has a divine encounter. He proclaims, surely the Lord is in this place, and he marks it. He uses the stone he slept on. Aren't we glad we don't have to still use stones? He uses what he had as a pillow, and he sets it down, and he pours oil over it to make it holy, to make it sacred, and he makes sure that he remembers this place because this is where he encountered God. Why would he want to mark it? So he can go back and seek God out again and be once again reminded of his belovedness instead of his brokenness, to go to the place where God met him and reminded him of his belovedness instead of his brokenness. Because Jacob is going to need to be reminded again and again. And God meets him along his journey again and again. Further along in Genesis, we encounter Jacob wrestling with God as he travels to meet Esau for the first time in what must feel like a lifetime. He's terrified of Esau's wrath. And after wrestling with and being blessed once again by God, God reminds Jacob that he's not alone in this life, that he's accompanied by the one who created him. And despite all the mistakes and setbacks, he's still God's beloved, still with a purpose, still with a promise of God's continued presence. Now, I wish I could show you the scene from the animated film, The Lion King, but due to current budget restraints, we don't have Disney copyright money today, so I'll do my best to describe it. There's a moment late in the film when Simba has been running from his past for almost his whole life, since he was a lion and a cub. And now, Rafiki, the one who blessed him the day he was born, has come to remind him that he's not the mistakes he's made. That his future doesn't have to be defined by the past he's been running from. And Rafiki is a Holy Spirit character. He reminds Simba, he, even when Simba says, who are you? Rafiki says, no, no, no. The question is, who are you? And they exchange this banter and Rafiki tells Simba 
that Simba's father, Mufasa, isn't dead and that he will show him to him. And so he leads Simba to a body of water, and as Simba steers into the water, you can see the scene in your mind. I know you can. As he steers into the water, all Simba can see is himself. Until Rafiki tells him to look harder. Because Mufasa actually lives within him, and the image slowly transforms from Simba's reflection into Mufasa's. And as this happens, Mufasa appears in this grand cloud formation. It's very biblical. And Mufasa tells Simba that he's forgotten him. His father, he says, you are more than you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son. And the mapping of this story for us, it's powerful. It's profound. Simba's been running just like Jacob, terrified, thinking the rest of their lives will be determined by their past. The very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, disrupts their lives and encounters them to remind them of who they are, to remind us of who we are, to remind Jacob who he is, what his purpose is, and that he serves a mighty God that is ever-present with him. In this moment in Genesis 28, this is the moment that Jacob is met face-to-face with God, and he's able to see it. I wonder how many times before God desperately tried to get Jacob's attention, disrupting his life to remind him that he actually wasn't that jealous second-born, fawning for approval or worth over his brother. I wonder how many times Jacob was simply too distracted, too consumed by himself to notice God's very presence. How many times have we been too distracted, too consumed by ourselves to notice God desperately trying to get our attention to remind us who we are and who we were created to be, what our purpose is, and that we serve a mighty God who is ever present with us. The world and everything around us teaches us what it means to live a life. Status, wealth, knowledge, luxury. If we have it, we're encouraged to get more of it. And if we don't have it, we are shamed into wanting it and working harder to acquire it. All of us are part of this. All of us buy into it. it can feel all-consuming, and the voices are overwhelmingly loud. It is a trap we live in, trying to live up to other people's expectations. And then when we don't live up to those expectations that others set or we've set for ourselves, that guilt and shame, it sends us running, running in all directions to escape, just like Jacob. And I don't know what path you're on today, but you know what path you're on today. Whether you're physically running or emotionally running or mentally running, all of that running isn't going to set us on the path that we were created to travel on. It's only Bethel. It's only the place that God encounters us to remind us who we are, beloved that we were created for a purpose to serve a loving God, and that God's promise is to be with us always. It is the place marked by the stone we put there. Wherever that place may be for you, we have to remember it. We have to return to it. We need to return to it, whether physically or within the sanctuary of our own hearts, to be reminded of the promise that Jacob received when he professed Surely the Lord is in this place. Where have we felt that? 
Where is that truth undeniably echoed within our souls? Surely the Lord is in this place. And because of that, I know who I am and what I was created for. That who I was doesn't determine who I'm becoming in Christ. Where's that place for you? For some, it might be this very sanctuary. And so you've marked it. You return to it. For others, it might be this table that we will come to this morning. The invitation to communion that is the place you feel you meet the Lord. You receive God's grace into your very hands. We have to remember our Bethels. And don't limit them. I know for my husband, Tiagan, he'd mark a spot in the woods near the college his mother taught for over 40 years. It's where God encountered him in a powerful way. And this morning, we have celebrated our graduates, and we are so proud of them, and we're so thankful for the ways that you shaped and formed them over all these years. We give thanks for that, for that commitment. And they are about to go on a journey that's different from any they've traveled before. And it can be distracting in the best ways and in the hardest ways. But as they travel, we invite them to return to their Bethels. Always going back to the places that remind you, surely the Lord is in this place. And we encourage you to be open to allowing God to reveal God's self to you in new places that will become your Bethels. Wherever those places are. We remember who God is and who we are because of God's promise. So this morning, I want you to think about that place. If it's here, thanks be to God. If it's here, I invite you to experience that reminder once again. And if it's elsewhere, hold that space in your heart this morning. Let's pray. God of all generations who have come before us, Holy is your name. We gather in your presence with praise and thanksgiving once again for the faithful love you've shown toward your people, for the many blessings you've given to us, and for your promises that are steadfast and eternal. Thank you for your faithful presence among us, even when we are not fully aware of it. Almighty God, continue to reveal yourself to us, for surely, for surely, you are in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.